If I could get the reactions of the panel to all of this, it's more of a comment than a question, I think, in some ways. But when I was working in government as a health policy advisor, I was very struck to the extent to which the Department of Health, but also health policy advisors working in number 10 or number 11, were very much a lone voice for public health. I remember fights over the uh, banning smoking in public places, the banning junk food advertising before nine o'clock on television, dealing with traffic light labelling, all these areas. And every time, the only advocate of such measures was located very firmly in the Department of Health or else the health policy advisors. It was extraordinary to an extent to which the, the other departments of state or other advisors in these areas would defend the interests of the industry or the various other stakeholders involved. And it's understandable that the industry is food industry, the alcohol industry, the tobacco industry, obviously are negatively affected by a lot of the things that public health measures wants to propose. And these are not evil people. And I remember the president of Cadbury's once saying to me that how odd it was to feel they were, they were originally set up to cope with the demon drink, the, the big chocolate companies would be. And now, suddenly, they themselves are the demons of, of obesity and so on. I, I think you will find, Minister, this will be a problem in government. And I just wondered whether, in thinking about the white paper, whether there are any kind of mechanisms one can put in place to adopt and to recognise the concerns of the industry, but not necessarily be subjugated by them. I'm an optimist, I have to say, <laughs> so I start, I start from an optimistic point of view, but I think that there have been some terribly important steps. There have been some very important steps made. The creation of the Cabinet Subcommittee, the Public Health Cabinet Subcommittee, is, is just one, actually. There is also a Social Justice Subcommittee. Uh, the Prime Minister and the Deputy Prime Minister have set up a families task force. There are also a number of interministerial working groups. One is on women, children and violence. The other is on drug and alcohol strategies. And I sit on all of those, so I'm going to spend a lot of time, if you like, in meetings, but the really important thing is, is that I have been invited to attend them all, which is a recognition up front, without any resistance, that public health is extremely important. And I think, you know, how you achieve change and how you achieve what you want in politics is, is interesting and, and where power lay, lies and all the rest of it. But a lot of it is to do with personality, a lot of it is to do with the force of arguments, a lot of it is to do with evidence, but a lot of it is carrying people along with you. And your presence at the table is crucial. Well, yeah, I think it's a very fair challenge. And there will always be this tension within any government department and across government between the different priorities. And, and public health is essentially about balancing those priorities to, to, to get to the right place. I was very intrigued watching how the um, preparations for flu, which I was very involved with, but over a number of years prior to the pandemic last year, looking at the engagement of government departments on that over time. And to start with... It was, well, that's health, isn't it? Why are we here? And, and there were cross-committees on, on, on that. But then gradually, as people were brought face-to-face -face with the reality of how it might affect them and of what they could do about it and of how their actions could have a significant impact on the population, even though, intrinsically, they hadn't thought about it. So trade and industry looking at business continuity for firms and what a difference that would make, for example. Home office thinking about justice and or justice whatever but maintaining public order things like that in a pandemic it was only when people were brought face to face with it and helped to focus on particular 
problems and issues and really encouraged to engage with it, then suddenly they realised that there were things they could do. And I think that kind of approach, focusing on, on the practical and saying, right, how can we go, may well help in this. I hope it does. I mean, I think this point of being there at the table is why having the Director of Public Health right there in the centre at local level will achieve hopefully what you're going to achieve by being there at the centre with other government departments. And, and I think that's right. I think you can do all the health impact assessments in the world and have pieces of paper that say this is the health impact assessment. But that tends to be a bit of a post hoc process justifying what policies are on the table. I think it's being there from the beginning and giving that challenge from the beginning that's really important. Right. Now, if people could say who they are, there are some roving mics, I think, and we'll take two or three questions at a go. Good morning. It's Nick Partridge from Terence Higgins Trust, the HIV and sexual health charity minister. It's a great pleasure to hear you challenge and engage us in a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to rethink public health and your determination to take public health out of lecture halls and into uh, the living room, fully involving the public and improving their health. And of course, it's not just the living room, it's the bedroom as well. And I know you're well aware of the challenges we face in improving sexual health uh, and preventing HIV, both of which are deeply rooted in health inequalities and further complicated by embarrassment and stigma. There are real opportunities for radically redesigning our sexual health and HIV services, bringing them much closer to the people who use them, um, expanding access and choice, and indeed reducing cost. So I'd really urge you to use sexual health and HIV services as an exemplar for change in the public health white paper. Because I really believe that if we can get it right for sexual health and HIV, we'll be incredibly well-placed to get it right for public health more broadly. Thank you. Paul Beresford, House of Commons. Whenever we discuss public health and health inequalities, the area that becomes a Cinderella is oral health. And the oral health inequalities are dramatic. Anyone only needs to look into the mouths of children and adults in deprived areas to see how bad it is. There is an opportunity which is used in the United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and that is to put fluoride in. We are really into the water supplies. We are really backward on this. The legislation is weak, and it's going to be weakened somewhat because of the changes in the white paper. And I'm targeting my question really at the panel, but not the minister, because if the minister is facing this problem, she is going to be barraged by the Green Ink Brigade, who will get on the broomsticks and fly in and charge. And most, I have to say, of the Public Health Brigade sit on their hands and duck the issue. So how can the Public Health Brigade, most of us in this room, help the Minister straighten this problem. Thank you. Andy Bell from Centre for Mental Health, which until last week was known as Sainsbury Centre. Sorry for uh, broadening yet further, but mental health, and in particular depression and anxiety, are probably the biggest single cause of disease burden for people of almost all age groups and contribute very significantly to physical ill health, some of the determinants of uh, why people smoke, drink too much, eat too much, don't exercise. How can we ensure that a proportionate amount of the effort of public health people can be put into people's mental well-being, emotional resilience, and in particular for that really important age group of 0 to 5 when some of those lifelong patterns are begun to be set. Well, a set of questions that uh, illustrate the range of problems that uh, you have to deal with, Minister. Um, HIV, oral health, mental health. Fabulous. And just to say, um, I'll take the last question first. Uh, When we talk about public health, 
the automatic reaction of an audience, and I, I didn't say it today because I think that many people here are, are well informed, but generally I would also always start by saying, I'm not just talking about alcohol and obesity and smoking, I'm talking about people's physical, mental, spiritual and emotional health and well-being, and I think your point's well made, that sitting beside why we drink too much, have an extra glass of wine at the weekend, have a cream cake, is a great deal to do with our mental health and well-being. And I shouldn't think there's a person in this audience who wouldn't say that the point at which they have another slice of toast or buy a cake, and there are lots of people smiling, so you all know it's true, is when you're feeling a bit low, need a bit of comfort, that's what I do. So actually, unless we address people's mental health and well-being, we won't make, I don't think, significant process because a lot of the public health physical problems are a symptom of underlying well-being problems. And it's one of the reasons that we are continuing with our commitment to employing health visitors, why the, the 0-5 early years group is so important. Um, that's the start of it, really. And if you can get in and have some action there, I think I think actually Sir Paul Beres would let me off the oral health, and I was looking to you. <laughs> this is ongoing, but I'd be very interested to hear what you both have to say about this, actually, because this has been rumbling on for some time. But just to say, well done to mentioning sex before nine o'clock in the morning. And what's really interesting, actually, and important to have mentioned it, because we perform, it's dropped slightly, but what, 200,000 abortions every year. If you look at the sexual health of young people, if you look at sex education schools, even with really informed audiences, the moment anybody mentions sex, you can feel people's anxiety levels rise. And until we have addressed the sexual health of the population, and if we can address the sexual health of the population and make, create an environment in which people feel comfortable to talk about it, when GPs actually you know, feel comfortable talking about it and talking to a 17-year-old in the surgery who's come to them about something completely different, and Anne was talking about uh, the role of GPs in public health and it not just being about alleviation of disease and its symptoms. Until we can get there, if we get there, then we will have really started to make progress. And then we can start talking about obesity. Maybe we can start talking about why people are fat rather than why they're obese. Wide range of questions. I think just on, on the sexual health one, picking that one up first, I would love to see us using that as an exemplar. I think it's got such a range, it really does go every part of the service, every part of the system. And if we can get that right, that would be a fine thing. But we shouldn't underestimate the difficulties in that, and I know you're, you're not. We can have, I mean, school nurses, one school nurse in every secondary school would help a lot because they can develop really good, and, and I've seen that working in practice, how that really does make a difference to a school, having a nurse trusted and able to talk with kids, and there when they need the conversation, rather than having to make an appointment and go and do all the scary things that that involves. So I think that, that would that, that's one bit, but we need to look at the whole system. Se sexual health services have always been, I think, because they evolved out of dermatology and specialist stuff like that, far too associated with the secondary care sector. Yes, you do need specialist services but you also need to bring that into accessible format for, for people more locally and responsive to, to their needs locally so we need to sort of look at those system changes and if we're putting in and looking at the prevention the prevention bits um, on the sex the transmitted diseases bit then next time we try a screening program or anything like that let's try and do it in a systematic organized way and not leave it for individual districts to work out different ways of doing it and having chlamydia screening program that isn't one basically at the moment although we're all trying valiantly it's something that needs addressing we're trying to do it but it's not really that wonderful across the country some exemplars
So that's sexual health. Fluoride, absolutely. I've looked in too many children's mouths over the years and, uh, and, and too many adults actually seen them having total clearances done with their teeth at ridiculous ages. Well, you ha it is a straightforward measure. The health impact is hugely positive. It does a load for inequalities. And if just everybody in this room stood up and said that regularly with the evidence behind them, that in itself would make a big difference. But we tend to just forget about it with all the other things. And that there has to be a concerted swell of opinion to get something done. And then there has to be the will locally to pull the levers and do it. But the public opinion change is something we've all got an emphasis on. Mental health, masses to do, worth doing it. But the sure start, those sorts of programmes, getting alongside people and helping families cope, very important. So are the mental health services, the sort of counselling services, the developmental ones, as well as the specialist ones to help them. And having to wait for months when your kid needs specialist care is not good enough and we've got to do something to improve. Anna. I think somewhere behind there, there was also the idea of innovation and that we need to also innovate within public health and how we do public health. And I certainly know of one or two examples around the chlamydia screening where people have really been innovative about putting screening into pharmacy, into places where uh, young women, the taboos are taken away, where they can, people can access information much more easily via internet, through their phones... I do think there is a real need for us to take out some of these services you've said about taking it into the living room. But being more innovative about screening programmes, about how we deliver the public health service, and that's true uh, of the rest of the health service. It both makes it more responsive to the people, to patients, and also can deliver value for money. So I think public health can't be exempt from the sort of wider quip agenda where we tend to forget the I, but where innovation is also better for people, higher quality, and delivers better value. We should absolutely be doing it, looking to particularly the voluntary sector where a lot of that innovation comes from and, um, and making sure that that is, is spread and that those innovations are not just limited to one or two pilots. And in terms of mental health, absolutely agree the need for priority around thinking about how do we prevent mental health. I think there are also, in terms of the links between mental health and other areas like obesity, I think it's unfortunate at the moment, you know, the amount of investment going into things like bariatric surgery, but we're not getting the appropriate, necessarily appropriate investments alongside that in psychological therapies to ensure that the reasons why people are getting obese in the first place are being addressed. And so I do think... There will be strategic commissioning choices to be made about where we're making investments, at what point along the pathway from the sort of extreme interventions of bariatric surgery right through to upstream interventions. And I think in a lot of cases we haven't got those investments in the right place. And the question will be how will the new commissioning groups start to grapple with these sorts of investment choices which are not, are not easy and where in fact the reasons we're not investing may be simply because we don't have yet the right workforce in the right place. And obviously some of the white papers indicated that workforce planning will become a more devolved activity and I think it would be interesting to have further discussions about what that means for planning the right sort of workforce to tackle the, the public health challenges we're talking about today. Hello, Corinne Camilleri-Ferranta. I'm a consultant in public health medicine from Derbyshire. 
I'd, coming back to the perhaps slightly more generic look and taking on board everything that, that everybody has said, we hugely welcome the idea of commissioning for outcomes and an awful lot of the other things that are in the white paper. I think a cause for concern for a number of us is that there seems to be, with a lot of the supporting papers, an implication that the public health service is somehow separate from what seems to be being called the NHS. And if you look particularly, for example, at the outcomes papers, it talks about outcomes for the NHS and then there will be the public health outcomes and as Lindsay was saying public health is very much a three-pronged area with the health protection with the health promotion but also with the population health the, the commissioning the quality the health services part and I think there is a concern arising that that is being ignored or perhaps slightly sidelined. I would welcome your views on that because I certainly personally and I think a number of us see it as we are the people with the skills to take those very difficult decisions around cost effectiveness and also to be able to stand back from the individual patient and look at the population. Hi, uh, Francesca Rivers from the Pharmaceutical Journal. We've heard quite a lot this morning about GPs' roles in commissioning and in the new public health vision. But pharmacists and pharmacies very well placed. It's, you know, pharmacists see people both when they're ill and when they're healthy, which positions them very well for supporting some of the public health innovations you've been talking about. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about how you see pharmacists' role in the new public health vision, if at all. And also, commissioning of pharmacy services has traditionally been really, really poor. There's a lot of in innovative... I'm glad you mentioned chlamydia screening. That's been one of, one of many public health services in pharmacy. But the commissioning of them in the NHS is traditionally very low, so they're not being used as they could be. So if you could just give me your views on that. Sorry, I'm uh, Sue Sethi, Public Health Medicine in Specialised Services Commissioning in the Northwest. Just to add to what Corinne has said, I think we in healthcare public health have expertise in health needs assessment and in interpreting the evidence. And it's very vital that we are given the opportunity to input into GP commissioning. I mean, we have done the very good examples of public health work in this area. For instance, we did the first healthcare needs assessment on adult congenital heart disease that the Department of Health has used to develop standards in this area, and as a result of which, adult congenital heart disease services have been very much improved in this country. More recently, we have done innovative work in looking at heart valves, TAVI, and PPVIs, for instance. And these are, again, examples of the new public health and innovation in public health extending to complex areas of healthcare. Well, three good questions there of pharmacy, public health commissioning in various areas. Just to say to the lady's last point, there are some really good examples and, and what's really important, and I know there are some Department of Health officials here, actually, they're the ones looking really tired <laughs> because they've done a lot, which will come back to the first lady's question, but, but there are some really good examples and it's very important that we pick those up and that's the sort of thing that we want to replicate. And, and coming back to the first question, I don't feel it's been forgotten, it's just that there's a limit to the number of hours in the day to have produced the first white paper in the sort of timescales we're talking about is phenomenal, actually. And, and if you look at the supporting documents, you can just imagine how much work's gone in. It's simply that if you could have put them out possibly together, one might have done ideally, but it will be out before the end of the year. 
it is important. It's not a sort of second thought or, or forgotten by any stretch of the imagination. And that will flesh out all the sort of details that I think that you're possibly looking for. With regard to pharmacy, I mean, I think there are a number of unexplored opportunities, really. Coming back to sexual health in particular, and you mentioned chlamydia, I think pharmacy, and there are a number of other options, actually, for giving public health advice, giving public health interventions, giving, actually, services, and pharmacy is one of them. There are many people who wouldn't go to their GP for sexual health advice, a lot of younger people in particular because they'd be worried about who they would bump into but they might call into a pharmacy in the next door town. As I say, one of the reasons that we have to look at the barriers that exist. It's terribly easy, it would be very easy for a new government coming in to say that all the things that went wrong or none of the things that happened were because the other government were useless at it. Well, that's not true. Commitment, really, and from all governments, from all political parties, is usually in much the same direction. One of the reasons that we haven't made progress in some areas is because there are significant barriers and they are difficult to overcome. And we have to look at those sort of areas, and that's sort of innovation. And For instance, if we go back to mental health, I know that there's a school somewhere that has given up some of its teaching budget to employ a clinical psychologist. Well, I mean, how innovative is that? It's phenomenal. If we think of industry, and you started by mentioning industry, Julian, they might sell co chocolate, but they've also got a workforce whose health they should be concerned about. And, and you know, we haven't yet mentioned the health of workforces and occupational health and all that is very important. So there's lots of opportunity. What we have to do is to break down the barriers to actually grasp those opportunities and make them work for us to improve public health. Pharmacies, absolutely. Last time I was in this room, actually, it was a, a conference, a discussion between pharmacists and public health specialists to say, what can we do together? And I was really amazed at some of the really innovative things that are happening, but I was equally depressed at the fact that there they are in their little pilots or they're really one person having a great idea and getting on with it, and other people just aren't taking it up. And again, it comes with these tensions between pharmacies are businesses, they, they're there to make profits, they're there to provide service, and both those things they're constantly balancing. We've got to make sure that we help them learn and be inspired by other people's good ideas, but also to practically provide these services in a way that isn't going to be to an economic disadvantage to the pharmacists themselves, and that's only fair and right because that's how they, that's how they operate. So getting that balance right is, is very important. And I say sharing good practice because people have managed to do it and that's do it. On the health services side, I, there's a whole number of things that we can and need to do here, but we need to focus on really what we're trying to achieve, and what we're trying to achieve is, I think, I hope, commissioning that makes sense to populations and is relevant to those populations and looks at the costs and the effectiveness and the evidence of what's being commissioned, and services which are provided in a sensible way, constantly reviewing their effectiveness and looking at the most appropriate ways of, of doing it, good for patients and good for, for populations. That means that a good understanding of the principles of public health and an ability to look at the evidence, analyse and assess it, and the capacity to do that needs to be in all those organisations one way or another. Part of that might be about helping GPs learn to do it better. Part of it might be training up hospital clinicians to, to do more of it. Part of it is training managers to understand it better and to do it. Part of it is having skilled public health professionals in positions where they're able to support and develop things and, and help other people. But there is another aspect, and that is around actually what incentives you put into the system. So the commissioning board nationally will be commissioning, as I understand it, primary 
care. I think that's right. And what the incentives they put, and it comes back to the issues about how we do the outcomes framework and where that fits. They, they need to have the right outcomes that they're looking at all across the system. And I'd like to see, and I'm not sure if this is all sorted yet, but I would like to see public health expertise on that commissioning board nationally so that they're asking the right questions and challenging the processes that they're putting in place themselves. Yeah, I mean, I think I made these points in, in my opening remarks that um, I do think that commissioners need help around, GP commissioners will need help around needs assessment data that can help them identify not only what the public health needs are, but to start and think how they might address it. So rather than just seeing the individual patient, there's a, yes, another child with uncontrolled asthma coming through the door and earning the quaff points for getting them on the asthma register and so on, that they start and ask the questions, well, actually, I've got a cluster, they're coming off this housing estate, what is it about the conditions that are causing that and what do I need to escalate to address that? And I, I think that is a, a different mindset than the majority. I'm not saying all, I've seen certainly you know, quite a lot of GPs have done some public health training but it is not I think the default either mindset and they don't necessarily have the data I'm, I'm concerned that uh, spreading the current resource around 500 organisations is that is indeed how many I know the Secretary of State was reserving the right to, to saying that that wasn't necessarily how many there would be he wasn't going to prescribe it but there are indications that these will still have a locality footprint so one assumes they will be more numerous than the PCTs. They will need to tap into that support and I think the challenge for public health is is the type of external support that develops for these consortia where are public health in those organisations now that might be sitting in very different organisations particularly if some of those are private sector and that is not a traditional place potentially for public health to sit but if actually in future which seems to be the government's intention GP consortia could look different places for commissioning support we need to make sure if public health isn't on the inside of those organizations which may not be feasible given the numbers it certainly needs to be in the organizations they're turning to for support thank you very much um, mike hopday from macmillan cancer support could i ask the, the panel for their views about how they think that the linkage between health and between the nhs and public health might work and, and just by way of an example of context, there's very strong evidence now that the end of cancer treatment is, is a teachable moment with, for example, breast cancer patients being very prone to messages about exercise in a way that certainly reduces their, their risk of heart problems in later life. Is there a role for public health in that sort of public health outcome or should things like that still be solely an NHS responsibility? Hi, Deborah Dennis, Lucy Faithful Foundation and Stop It Now UK and Ireland. We're a child protection charity working to protect children from child sexual abuse. So my question relates to that. I was very pleased to hear about making public health a everybody's business and taking it into people's living rooms. We recently held some conferences called Child Sexual Abuse, Making It Everybody's Business. It is one of those topics that people don't want to talk about for very obvious reasons, I think. But bearing in mind that one in six children are affected by child sexual abuse by the time they're 16 and the effects that that can have on them and their lives as children but also as adults can be very wide-ranging into drug and alcohol abuse, self-harm, the list is endless really. I was just looking for the panel's views on whether child sexual abuse and its prevention is viewed as a public health issue and how that might fit into the public health agenda. Jeremy Taylor from National Voices, the, the Coalition of Health and Care Charities. I very much welcome the Minister's comments, and I think we're all going to benefit from having a plain-speaking, unembarrassed uh, Minister for Public Health 
My, my question is really about the voluntary sector and picks up a bit on points that have been made. Voluntary organisations, both at national and local level, can play a very important, do play a very important role in public health, in promoting public health, in engaging with disadvantaged communities, and indeed being the sources of innovation at local level. We think the voluntary sector has a really important role to play in the government's emerging agenda on public health. At the same time, many voluntary organisations are suffering right now from in-year cuts within local authority areas. It's a classic challenge of joined-up government, and I wondered whether the Minister had any comments on how that challenge can be, can be addressed. Let me reverse the order for a bit and uh, uh, some time to think about these things. Uh, Lindsay, do you have some views on... Yes, the public health NHS links and using cancer as an example, but I think that is a very good example of what I was trying to sort of talk about before, really, that you need people everywhere in the system needs to understand their responsibilities and their opportunities and to use those, but also to have the confidence to do it. So to know what to say and when to say it. That moment, if you're the clinician talking to the patient at that time, it's no good saying, oh, I can't talk to you about that, but I think you really ought to learn about obesity, so go somewhere else. It's not going to happen. But if you've got the facts and you can say, look, wouldn't it be a good idea just to lose a bit of weight because it will make a big difference to you in terms of your long-term survival, then that's the moment to capture and to have the confidence to do it. So we need to help people to be able to do those jobs at that time and take this holistic approach about NHS and other responsibilities. On the child sexual abuse, well, yes, I do think it is, and sexual violence too. And I put that all as part of, but not only part of, sexual health services. That's what we're supposed to be doing is is looking at the whole sort of health, not just the infectious diseases or the contraception. It's, it's a very holistic service and it needs to be regarded as such and developed as such with the appropriate um, interventions. But it is also a whole system issue. So again, the school nurses, the mental health issue, the mental health services, the support services, the counselling, all, all of those do help people explain, bring this to people's attention I'm being abused, who do I go and talk to? But equally, I'm an abuser and I need that help. That also needs to be picked up. So we've got to get a whole system approach to it. It's, it's not Isn't there a slight danger there that, that when making the problem so big and so all-embracing that it becomes really beyond the capacity of any individual government department or indeed any government to be able to deal with? Yes, If we start including is. things like sexual abuse as but part that, of a public health issue. I think that's, that's the problem with, with public health generally. You, you, you say, oh, it's all just too hard. By the start, you, you sort of expand it and expand it, and they say, oh, can't do it. So what you have to do, and, and the, what one of the tricks is to make it manageable, to say, okay, this is complicated, but let's put it down into its boxes. What are the big issues here? What are the things that we can make a difference to and where action would help? And then let's focus on those in a concerted and considered way. And then you can do it. I don't think it expands it too much. It is essentially part of health and well-being. We've said it, it is fundamentally part of that. But nonetheless, there are ways in which you can deal with it, but it's a complicated issue. I'd just pick up the point about public health within the NHS. I think there are huge opportunities, and we do need to make sure that healthcare professionals have the right training to take advantage of those opportunities, whether it is in pre-op assessment and saying you could lose weight, or if you give up smoking, this is going to improve or reduce your risk of surgery. There are opportunities, and I think we've focused a lot on primary care as the sort of place for these opportunistic brief interventions but actually I think they exist throughout secondary care and obviously some uh, hospitals have had their own smoking cessation clinics and been very active in that rounder 
are taking the opportunities for primary prevention. But there is a, a sort of art and science to it. We know that just giving advice saying, I think you should lose weight, it has no effect whatsoever. And there are skills and techniques. And I think we need to teach those to people so they, as we say, feel confident to do it in a way that we know works for people. And where appropriate, we know some people will need support. It's not just about information giving. They will need support. And I think at the moment, we're not often clear about what are the things that you can refer people into. So obviously people have been aware of sort of exercise on referral, although I'm not sure that I'm not sure on the evidence base. Somebody can tell me whether that's, that is evidence or not. But I think both for general practitioners and for other health professionals working in the more acute sector, knowing where to prefer people in, whether, I mean, for smoking cessation is easy, but for weight loss support or other types of programme, I think we're not there yet. And, of course, it needs commissioners to join that up. They need to be commissioning those services to give opportunity for patients to be referred into them. But I think there's a huge opportunity there, and we must absolutely not lose that with this, the, having what we need as well, but it's in addition a focused and specialist public health workforce. We need to remind every healthcare professional that they have duties not only to treat ill health, but to also take opportunities to, to prevent further deterioration. Yes, the first gentleman's point was well made, actually, and I think there is a danger, and I think it exists already, is that once you get ill... You're no longer a public health issue. <laughs> we don't need to tell you to not smoke too much, not drink too much, not eat too much, etc. And actually, we cease to worry terribly much about people's mental health and well-being. And I think, as you rightly say, actually, that group of people are often very susceptible and, and, and receptive to, to those messages. And actually, if we look at society and we look at the number of people who will be living much longer with long-term conditions, public health isn't confined to young people and sexual health advice. It's also about older people. It's about prevention of falls. It goes right across the, the age spectrum and very, very important. So the join-up between primary care, public health, secondary care is crucial. And it is very important, going back to what I said when I was speaking, that public health is everybody's business. Just because you're an ophthalmologist, it doesn't mean to say that you can't use the opportunity to give two pennyworth of public health advice to the person sitting in front of you. Somebody mentioned yesterday, you know, the hairdresser has somebody sitting in the hairdresser's chair for three hours. This is an opportunity, should we wish to take it up, for a group of people that are very hard to reach, but they do have their hair streaked. I will, I will, maybe that's a challenge to embarrass me, <laughs> find something that will embarrass me. I think that's a very interesting point about the voluntary sector who I know are finding it very difficult at the moment, and it's often local authorities who are cutting back their grants and all the rest of it. And actually, one of the things that I think could be so powerful about this, embedding public health within local authorities, is going to, I hope, make local authorities think about the longer-term consequences of what they do. Lindsay mentioned when she was speaking about things like local public health, things like alcohol, we could look at violence, being appropriate, proper reasons for refusal of licensing applications, public health considerations being taken into account when considering planning applications. I think all that is very important. But what it also does is it brings the voluntary sector, not just as something that the local 
local authority sees as a delivery mechanism for meeting the needs of this group of people. But actually the voluntary sector really involved and embedded within the local authority as well as a means of delivering some of the public health and making them realise that actually if they have a role in the prevention of poor health and the promotion of good health, cuts to voluntary sector actually might have an impact there. Yes, of course, sexual abuse is a public health. And no, it's not too big. You can't confine it. I mean, the implications of being sexually abused as a child have enormous ramifications, well beyond the immediate family. I have no doubt, and I have speaking without evidence, but actually I would suggest that if the abuse is known about by a few people in the area, it would have an impact on their health as well, because it is a very difficult issue to deal with. And as with sexual health, as gentleman said about not being in Paris, we have to take it all on board. We have to say we can't, I mean, we're not going to change this overnight, but we have to start the conversation, we have to start talking about it, we have to start acknowledging it. I recently met, and I'm sorry to go on, but I will do just for a minute, I recently met a man who runs a charity for that runs a helpline for people who are concerned about their sexual feelings and inclinations. Now, just how edgy is that? That is a really, really difficult area. But there is one person out there who has recognised that there is a need to offer support and help and prevention work to people who are worried that they might be a paedophile or have feelings in the wrong direction. We have to take it all on, recognise it's very big, recognise we won't change it overnight, but make a difference. And actually, in some ways, we have to be a bit evangelical about this. We all have to go out there and start talking about it. Anna, you want yeah, to just wanted to come back um, very quickly. It was on the, on the previous issue. I think throughout the discussion, we've all talked, and I'm as guilty as everyone else, about lots of different people having to do things to contribute to public health. We've not really talked about what's the incentive. You know, what's the incentive for the secondary care physician? What is the incentive for the GP to really take this seriously? What is the incentive for the pharmacist? I mean, talk there about, you know, commissioning being weak. If nobody's paying for any of this, if, I mean, obviously there's the intrinsic motivation. If we train people, at least they might have the skills and think about doing it, but if they don't have the time, if there's no reward either for them personally or collectively as an organisation, this will get squeezed out and I think we, we need to challenge this existing white paper and hopefully the detail that follows to say, does this add up? Are the, will it really make the NHS, will the outcomes framework, the things that are driving it, the commissioning process, really help people to do the things that we need them to do? And I'm not sure any of us, and I'm guilty as everyone else, have really, really addressed that. Minister, you want to come back on that? No, just to say, you are absolutely right. We've got to get the outcomes right. We've got to get the incentives right. Very important. But I would have another ask and say, even though I am not paying you for this, would you just mention to the patient in front of you that actually if they cut the number of fags they smoke or cut down the alcohol, it might work. It is a sad state of affairs, a very sad state of affairs, when the only things that happen are things we pay for. I'd like to thank all members of the panel very much, particularly the Minister, for taking time, a valuable time out to come and talk to us. We're very grateful to them. It was a very uh, useful discussion. We've added an awful lot to your agenda. I think it would be nice if we'd taken some things off your agenda, but we have not been able to do that. Uh, perhaps you just express your appreciation in a normal way. Thank you.